Thank you, Wes, for reading our scripture tonight, and thank you for being here. Very grateful for your presence. We appreciate so much your willingness to be here tonight. Very grateful for the opportunity to come back, and appreciate you coming back. I know that you may not have intended to come back. We want you back at every time we meet, but we're very grateful that you're here tonight, and we're going to continue a study that we actually began last week, last Sunday morning, and I had thought, well, I anticipated finishing it this morning, uh, recognizing that there was a good chance I wouldn't, but I do want tonight to try to conclude our study, and as we think tonight, by way of continuation, about the reconstruction of our nation. And the last two weeks, we have talked about the destruction of our nation. This morning, we introduced the concept of the reconstruction of our foundation. And by that, I simply mean what we have to do is go back and reconstruct, rebuild. And as we explore this thought tonight, I want to just share with you some statements that have been made in days gone by that I think reflect the sentiments of many of the leaders of our country in days gone by with regard to Scripture and our allegiance to the God of the Bible. And we talk about the problems that we're facing in our country today, and many of us are well aware of what's going on. And what I want to do to try to put everything into perspective before we look more in depth at what we were talking about this morning about reconstructing, I want to just share with you some information that I think is a microcosm of where we are as a nation. And so I want to begin by citing some quotations from some of our former presidents. And I want to begin by reminding all of us of a statement made in the Psalms. In Psalm 119, the psalmist said, Great peace have those who love your law. I'm convinced that one of the reasons we as a nation of people are not at peace and why there is such discord and disharmony among people in our land is because we fail to respect or reverence God's word. As a result of that, we have forfeited our peace. John Quincy Adams, who was the sixth president of our country, said the first and almost the only book deserving of universal attention is the Bible. Abraham Lincoln, the 16th president, said all the good from the Savior of the world is communicated through this book. But for the book, we could not know right from wrong. All the things desirable to man are contained in it. Woodrow Wilson, who was the 28th president of our country, said the Bible is the one supreme source of revelation of the meaning of life the nature of God and spiritual nature and need of men. It is the only guide of life which really leads the Spirit in the way of peace and salvation. And then Andrew Jackson, the seventh president, said, Go to the Scriptures. The joyful promises it contains will be a balsam to all your troubles. And then finally, Calvin Coolidge, the 30th president 
of America said, the foundations of our society and our government rest so much on the teachings of the Bible that it would be difficult to support them if faith in these teachings would cease to be practically universal in our country. These are the sentiments of men who have led this nation. My prayer is that more of our elected officials will recognize the tremendous blessings associated with God's Word. To stand, as the psalmist said, in awe of God's Word. To recognize that what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3 is absolutely correct. When he wrote all Scripture, every Scripture, is inspired of God, and then he said, and it is profitable. The design of Scripture is to profit the human family. And sadly, we are on the course, we are on a course of destruction because we have abdicated the teaching of Scripture. Let me just share with you some, really, I think, let, let me just share with you some information that will help put into perspective the uphill battle that we are facing in this country. One in four one in four parents living with a child in the U.S. today are unmarried. Forty percent of babies born in the U.S. are born to unmarried parents. The U.S. has the highest teen pregnancy rate in the industrialized world. One-third of our population is battling some form of sexually transmitted disease, costing our country $16 billion for treatment. Alcohol consumption. Approximately 14 million people in the U.S. meet the criteria for severe alcohol use disorders, and alcohol is involved in more than 88,000 deaths per year. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the cost of excessive alcohol use in the U.S. alone exceeds $200 billion. According to a survey, an estimated one out of every eight Americans struggles with an alcohol disorder. Almost 30 million Americans actively struggle with alcohol abuse. And then you think about substance abuse. The growing drug crisis sweeping the U.S. is deadlier than gun violence, car crashes, or AIDS, none of which have killed as many Americans in a single year as overdoses did in 2017. Now that just gives somewhat of a picture of where we are as a nation of people. We talk about the moral corruption and the moral confusion that is so prevalent, so widespread in our nation. The abuse of tobacco, alcohol, and illicit drugs is costly to our nation, exacting more than $740 billion annually in cost related to crime, lost work, productivity, and health care. And then we talk about crime. Did you know that 
A recent report identifying the top 10 most dangerous cities with populations of more than 100,000 people. St. Louis, Missouri comes in at number four. Memphis, Tennessee is number five. Birmingham, Alabama is six. Little Rock, Arkansas is number seven. We talk about the Bible Belt. Memphis, Tennessee, Birmingham, Alabama, Little Rock, Arkansas, that is the Bible Belt, is it not? And yet these are three of the most dangerous cities to live in in our nation. What does that say about those who are living in these cities? Mass incarceration is costing our country, listen to this, $182 billion per year. If the U.S. prison population were a city, it would be among the country's 10 largest. More people are behind bars in America than are living in major cities such as Philadelphia or Dallas. Staggering, isn't it? We have the, the highest rate of incarceration of any nation in the world today. And so, to some extent, this is a barometer, if you please, of where we are as a nation of people. So, again, the passage that was read this morning and again tonight, Psalm 11, verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, the question is, what can the righteous do? And as we have said the last two weeks, Many of us feel somewhat impaired. There's a sense of what can I do because I'm only one person. For many of us, we do not hold political office. We are not a preacher, a teacher. We are not a quote unquote community leader. And so again, the question, what can we do? What can I do? Well, I think that there are some things that we can do. There are some things that we must do. And so as I said this morning, first and foremost, righteous people must have courage. And what that means is we must have the courage, the fortitude to stand up and to speak up. As I mentioned earlier today, the old saying, all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good people to say or to do nothing. And I really believe that there are many, many people in our country today, I talked about the statistics, how many, many people in our country today are concerned about the moral behavior, the declining moral behavior in our country. 81% of the people polled. That says to me that there are a lot of folks like us who are more than anxious about the state of our nation. I'm not sure what the future holds. I do know who holds the future. I, I remember the words of Daniel in Daniel chapter 4 verse 32 that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomsoever He will. I think about the words of the psalmist in Psalm 33 when he said, Blessed be the nation whose God is the Lord. We are not a theocracy. We are a republic. And we have a democratic process and God has been very good to us as a nation of people and we are grateful for that. But when you see the erosion that is, so, that is so evident in the world in which we live, particularly in this country, again the question comes back, what can the righteous do? Well, we must have courage. But secondly, righteous people must have conviction. 
And I want to share with you some thoughts along these lines. Now, I want you to think about a passage found in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Peter said, sanctify the Lord God in your heart and be ready to give an answer to every man that asks you of the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. There is a sense in which every single one of us as children of God, we must have courage, absolutely. But factor to that courage, there must be conviction, strong conviction. We understand that there is something called absolute truth. God is the one that has designed absolute truth. And so what we want to do is make a difference in the world in which we live. So here's what we can do. Number one, we must rebuild and restore the home. That's the foundation of our nation. We must rebuild and restore the home as the foundation of our nation. The psalmist said in Psalm 127, verse 1, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain who build it. The home today is chaotic. I mean, you look at America. The rise of divorce, as I said this morning, the acceptance, the legislation that has now made it possible for people of the same gender to enter into a quote-unquote marriage contract sanctioned by the laws of our land. And so you look at the home and you see the demise of our nation really can be traced back in many respects to the home because I'm convinced the old adage, as, as the home goes, so goes the nation. Our nation is in trouble because the home's in trouble. If we can get the home back to where it needs to be, if we can get the home back in line with God's Word, then that will correct a lot of the ills that we face in our country today. But look at, look at our nation. I mentioned the number of illegitimate births in our country. And then factor in the thousands upon thousands of people that are simply living together without the benefits of marriage. And you remember what Paul said, I will therefore that the younger women marry and then bear children. That's God's design, isn't it? God said in Hebrews chapter 13 that the marriage bed is undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. In the ancient Roman Empire, fornication, adultery, as a matter of fact, they were problematic to the people. And yet, Paul and the other apostles in the first century, they preached the gospel. And in preaching and teaching the gospel, what did they do? They rectified a lot of the ills facing the home in, in that day and time. And so, to go back and to recognize the importance of that divine union, marriage. God said what he has joined together, man is not to put asunder. That's God's design. One man, one woman for life. And yet, in our nation today, we all know that that's not the case. And then think, if you would, about how many, many children in our country today like supervision. There is a lack of nurturing and love and care and discipline. 
I mean, it's, it's evident. Go to the supermarket. Go to a department store. Spend some time out in public and you'll see firsthand some of the problems that we're facing with regard to parents and children. Children, as the psalmist said, are the fruit of the womb. They are a heritage of the Lord. And how grateful we are for those that we identify as bone of our bones and flesh of our flesh. But there are a lot of, there are a lot of children today that have no direction. They are like a ship on an open sea with no rudder, no sail. And they're just aimlessly floating through life. No one setting parameters and no one setting before them the right example. And you think about our children today. If our children do not learn to respect authority in the home, the ramifications are significant. They're going to be disobedient in school. They're not, gonna, they're not going to respect authoritative figures in the classroom. They're not going to respect the administration. And then later in life when they get a job, do you think they're really gonna, going to bow to the authority in the workplace? And then add to that their view of Scripture. What are they going to think about Scripture? The whole tenor of Scripture is that we bow our will in submission to the will of God. We don't alter the Word of God to fit our lives, but rather we are called upon to alter our lives to fit the Scripture. Paul said all Scripture is inspired of God. Yes. And Paul also said in Colossians chapter 3, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. If it doesn't, if it doesn't dwell in mamas and daddies, then do you really think it's going to dwell in the hearts and lives of our children? I think about little Vera, who's not here tonight, but I guess her favorite song is Jesus Loves Me. Where do you think she learned that? Don't you think she learned it from her mama and daddy? Don't you think that children today deserve the right to know something about Jesus and the fact that, yes, there is somebody that loves you. His name is Jesus. There's a God in heaven who loves you. The Bible says God is love. And so to think that there are millions and millions of children in our world today, they feel unloved, unwanted, uncared for. They lack supervision. They lack discipline. discipline they lack education. It's destroying our country. And so for us as parents to respect the words of Paul when he said, Bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's not a suggestion, it's a command. It's what God wants us to do. If we fail to teach our children, then what do we have to look forward to in future generations? I mentioned last week, statistically empires, nations, or kingdoms last about 10 generations. A generation being 25 years, 250 years. And go back and look at some of the great empires in days gone by. Look at Assyria. Look at the Medes and the Persians. Take note of the Grecian Empire and then the Roman Empire. And we talk about the demise of Rome. 
and the problems that Rome faced. Let me just share with you very quickly what led to the downfall of the Roman Empire. First and foremost, the increase in divorce. Number two, higher taxes. Number three, this insatiable appetite for pleasure and brutality. And then decay of religion. Another thing that I read, the Roman Empire, they lost control of their borders. And then the building of gigantic gigantic armaments. Rome didn't fall from without. They fell from where? From within. It might be the case that we as a nation of people are our own worst enemy. Let that sink in for a minute. We are our own worst enemy. So first we've got to rebuild and restore the home as the foundation of our nation. Secondly, we must be a light for God. We must be a light for God and a light for all that is good and decent and right and wholesome in a darkened world of sin. John said in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Some translations say the whole world lies in darkness. Jesus said that light has come into the world. Jesus was the light of the world. He said light has come into the world, but listen, men love darkness rather than light. The intent of light is to, is to dispel darkness. The goal of every child of God is to dispel spiritual darkness. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Do you remember what he said in Matthew 5 verse 16? Let your light so shine before men. If we fail to shine as lights in this nation, in this world, then darkness will reign supreme. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 8, look, you were once darkness. But he said, now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Is that exhortation not Is it not relevant today? Yes, it is. We have the responsibility, we have the duty to be lights in a darkened world. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Listen to him. He that followeth after me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And so I think about the fact that we must radiate light in this world. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul said that we are to be blameless and harmless, the sons of God in the midst of a crooked and darkened generation. God wants you to be a light bearer. And think about this for a moment. As light bearers in this world, that suggests, that says that our lives are supposed to be distinctive or different. If the world does not see a difference in our lives, then pray tell who will make a difference. Paul said the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to every man, teaching us, instructing us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we are to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Peter said in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, you are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's holy nation today is the church. We are the Israel of God. 
and we are to be distinctive and different. We are to let our light shine. People ought to know that we belong to the king. The word kingdom carries with it the idea of the reign or rule of God. As a Christian, Jesus Christ is supposed to be the Lord of our life, isn't he? If he is the Lord of our life, that means that we're taking orders from him, right? He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is over all. That means we're different. We have been, as Peter said, called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Who were not a people, but now are the people of God. That's us. We're supposed to be different. And I would add to that, not only are we to be the light that radiates in a darkened world of sin, but we are also to be salt. Matthew 5, 13, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You ever thought about the benefits of salt? Salt is used sometimes as a preservative, is it not? In days gone by, people would would often pack meat in salt. It would preserve it. You look at our nation today and you think about, okay, I'm just one person. I'm not a preacher, a teacher, a politician, so what can I do? Do you remember in Genesis chapter 18 when God told Abraham in the long ago he was going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? He would rain upon those cities fire and brimstone from heaven. Abraham bartered with God. And do you remember how many souls would have prevented the absolute annihilation of those cities? Ten righteous souls. Can we be a preservative for good in this nation? You better believe we can. Ten righteous people. Salt is not only a preservative, but it is a purifier. Boy, our nation today, our nation today needs a heavy dose of righteousness, doesn't it? Didn't Solomon write in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34, Remember what he said? Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach unto any people. Are we not to be that leavening agent for good in this world? Yes. Yes. Salt is used as a preservative. It is used to purify in many respects and also It has the innate ability to make things taste more palatable. You think about how many people in our country today have a bad taste in their mouth about life in general. Isn't it sad to see people take their own life? read about a comedian just the other day. I wasn't familiar with him. Took his life, 48 years old, I think. How many people in our nation fail to understand what life's all about? They have no no idea, no understanding of their origin. They don't know what they're here for, and they have no idea where they're headed. The Bible answers those questions. And so you think about as a child of God, you have the opportunity, you have the ability to make Christianity palatable to people around you. 
Wouldn't it be great if as we intermingle in, in the world in which we live, as we go out into our schools and to our places of work, in our neighborhoods, wouldn't it be wonderful if people said, you know what, I don't know what you have, but whatever it is, I want it. And wouldn't it even be greater if they recognized first and foremost, you know what, he or she is a Christian. And based on their Christian life, based on the peace that I see in their lives, that peace that passes all understanding, I want that in my life. We ought to make Christianity palatable to people. It ought to be something that creates thirst in, in the lives of people. They want what we have. And look, we ought to be so equipped that we can give it to them. And then I would suggest we must be a voice for truth on moral issues. In Psalm 43, verse 3, the psalmist said, Send out your light and your truth. We have the responsibility of being a voice for God wherever we are on moral issues, do we not? Now you think about the Apostle Paul. Paul is writing to Christians in the first century. The Roman Empire was a massive, massive empire. The authority that the Roman Empire welded, incredible. And here's the Apostle Paul, a preacher, a teacher, an evangelist, a missionary, a writer. And what is the Apostle Paul doing? He's going from city to city to city. And you know what he's teaching? Teaching people about Jesus. When Paul went to the city of Corinth, and Corinth was a moral cesspool of evil. Corinth was well known for their idolatry and immorality. Paul spent 18 months there. All right, Paul, did you do any good? Were you able to change the lives of people? What did you preach about in Corinth? Paul said, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus our Lord, and ourselves as your servants for His sake. He said, I determined not to know anything among you but Christ and Him crucified. Paul lifted up Christ, didn't he? Isn't that what we have the responsibility to do? To lift up the truth of Almighty God? To say, look, there is a better way of life. You don't have to live in immorality. When Paul went to the city of Corinth, I said a minute ago, he spent 18 months there. He could easily have said, you know what, those people wouldn't be interested. I mean, when I look at all the social ills that they have, why would they ever want to hear anything about Christ? Paul said, Know you not that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, neither fornicators, adulterers, idolaters, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners. And then he said, and such were some of you. But he said, you were washed, verse 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Acts chapter 18, verse 8, Luke gives us a commentary on the work of Paul in the city of Corinth. He said, many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were what? Were baptized into Christ. Did they change? Yes, they did. Why? Because they had the opportunity to hear the gospel. Now, do you think that if Paul had the opportunity to live in our country today, do you think if he were living in Memphis, Tennessee today, in this Mid-South area, do you think he would be silent or do you think he would be vocal? Some people say, well, you know what? It's not my response. I don't need to say anything. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Look, the worst thing that we can do in the world is withhold the truth of God from somebody. 
Truth's what sets you free. That's what Jesus said, John 8, verse 32. You shall know the truth. The truth shall make you free. The devil wants to keep you in darkness. The devil wants to keep you enslaved to sin. What we have to do is be like Jude in the days of old who recognized the importance of snatching people out of the fire. To understand, let me tell you what. There is a better way of life. And then I would suggest we must fervently pray for the leaders of our nation. Not only should we pray for the leaders of our nation, but we ought to pray that they will be open to the truth of God's Word. I think it's good to pray for our leaders. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that we are to pray for kings and all who are in authority. Why? That we might live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. The goal is to live in a, in a nation, in a place where we enjoy freedom like this, religious freedom. But we need to be praying that those who occupy positions of power in our nation will be in tune with God's Word. If we, if we as a nation of people do not recognize the importance of Scripture, then God help us. Psalm 119 elevates God's Word. The psalmist recognized the blessings associated with the Word of God. We've got leaders in our nation today. They couldn't tell you what, they couldn't tell you the first thing about Scripture. I, don't, I really think that we have a lot of leaders that know nothing about the Bible. What we want to do is cultivate people that respect the Word of God and that are open to the teaching of God's Word. Be like Samuel of old who said, Speak, Lord, your servant hears. We want to do what's right. Why? Because it's right. It's the right thing to do. And then finally and quickly, we must become more evangelistic. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, that the church, the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. We as God's people have the responsibility of fulfilling the words of Jesus in Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Look, when we as God's people become more evangelistic, and recognize that there are people in our world today, in our nation today, who are lost and dying in sin. And the only remedy for a life of sin is the blood of Jesus Christ. When we convert people to Christ, and they submit their lives to the teaching of God's Word, guess what? We change the landscape of not just, not just a home, but a neighborhood, a city, a state, a nation. And that's true not just in America, that's true worldwide, is it not? That's the intent of the gospel. The gospel has that kind of power. The gospel has saving power. The gospel has strengthening power. The gospel can change us. It can change the world. And so tonight, I want to encourage us to remember that we can make a difference. Do you believe that? Do you believe we can make a difference? I believe we can. Listen, Paul made a difference. Peter and John, they made a difference. 
And the reason they made a difference summed up in the words of Peter and John in Acts chapter 4 when they said, we cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard. When we have that kind of conviction, we will be zealous, we'll be evangelistic, and we will do our best to get the gospel in the lives of people. Would you pray with me? Dear God, we're so thankful for, we're thankful for your kind providence. We're so thankful for the liberties that we enjoy in this country. We're thankful for our prosperity and for the blessings that we enjoy. And Father, we pray that as your people that we will seek to the best of our ability to make a difference. And we pray that however hard it might be that we will stand and that we will stand up and that we will speak up and be a voice for truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to close tonight by offering the invitation to those of you who are here. And the invitation is something that we do weekly. And the reason we do that is because God is in the saving business. We've been talking about our nation. And as I think about our nation, I understand that, you know, what affects our nation affects us individually. As a person, if somebody were to ask, are you concerned about the future, of what, what lies ahead as a nation, my answer would be yes. But let me tell you this. The concern I have is not so much for myself, but rather I'm concerned about our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. I don't know what America's going to be like in 50 years. I know there are some of you that are here today. You'll be here in 50 years, the Lord willing. And I don't know what this nation's going to be like for you as children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. But I know that we need a revival. It needs to begin in the church. And as parents, what we want to do is set the right example. We want to be like Paul who spoke of Christ living in him. And we want our children to see Christ living in us. And we want to point them in the direction of Christ so that they will become children of God so that they can impact this society and this nation. Because they are the future of this nation. And so the goal is that we all make a difference. Well, where does it begin? It begins with each of us, doesn't it? And if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian and you want to make a difference in your life and in the lives of others, let me tell you where you need to look. You need to look to Jesus. He's the difference maker. He has the ability to give you a new life. So what would you need to do? You need to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. 
to repent of your sins as they did on Pentecost Day, Acts 2 verse 38. To confess Jesus as Lord in your life and then to be immersed in water. To rise to walk in newness of life and then to be faithful. Even if it costs you your life, you maintain your integrity to God. Revelation 2.10 If you're here tonight and you need the prayers of the church, we certainly want to pray with you and for you. We know that James in the long ago said, confess your faults one to another, pray one for another. We'd be happy to pray with you tonight and for you as we stand and sing.